Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello and welcome to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center right here in Tempe, Arizona, where we help you build businesses and connect you with the right people. I love it when we go off a little bit in the world of business and bring in our higher education professionals. And today I could not be more excited to introduce you to a couple of members of the leadership team at University of Phoenix, My one of my alma maters. We have Mark, uh, Mark Booker. He's the vice provost for strategy and Sandit Bakta, vice president, product management, career and student experience. Welcome to Phoenix Business Radio. Thanks, Thanks, Karen. Great to be having us. So happy to have you. I think we've had this on the docket for a while there, and you've had your PR team doing a great job connecting with us. I believe they're even listening today from the other side of the country. We hope so. That's the plan. And in a bit, we're going to have Chris join us, uh, Herring, who is with Stride Incorporated. He had a meeting to attend to. I said, just slide into the studio when when you get here, and we'll incorporate incorporate you into the conversation. So we look forward to Chris's arrival in just a bit. Before he joins us, I would love to hear from both of you. Let's first have either one of you or both of you talk about who University of Phoenix is. If somebody is listening or watching and they don't know who you are, they've been under a rock. (laughs) But let's let's talk about who who University of Phoenix is, who you serve, and then I would love to hear the backstory about how long y'all have been there and how your career led you to be in the positions that you are today. Okay, great, Karen. So I'll kick it off and talk about what University of Phoenix is. And University of Phoenix is the premier institution for serving working adults. We've been in existence for over 45 years. Um, And we started uh, by our founder, Dr. John Sperling. He started to create educational opportunities for adults that needed to go back to school. And and back in 1976, when we were founded, that really didn't exist very much. And throughout our history and our time, we kept finding ways to serve the adults' needs. There's a quote that John had said about a, a working adult institution is not Uh, defined by walls of itself. It's defined by the lives of its students. Mm -hmm. And that's been our mission and and our focus for many, many years, where most people probably know us as the quote-unquote online institution. And we were one of the the founding institutions that went into distance education and online and have really made, carved out a niche for that because that's where adults serve and look for their educational opportunities by convenience. They need to have convenience. They're, They're balancing life, kids, jobs, family, whatever it is. And so because of that, we have always adapted our borders, whether it was originally school by at nighttime to online to whatever will come next, we will be there to serve our working adult students. So it's, it's an institution that's different than other institutions that are out there that may serve what, you know, is still called the traditional age, 18 to 24 year old students. But um, it's a very unique place. And it's a very rewarding place because watching adults who may not have had the original opportunity to go to, to college right out of high school or have had life happen to get their degree, advance their lives, advance their careers is just an amazing thing. And if you want to learn most about University of Phoenix, I actually invite you to go to one of our commencement ceremonies. If you see our students graduate and see the stories they tell and just see that energy, that's where you really get to know us and understand us. So. It's a great start. Anything to add to that send up, or did he pretty much nail it? Oh, he nailed it. I think if I had anything to reinforce, I would just say that that passion and strive that we have to really understand our student, our customer, and making sure that we're doing all we can to truly help them succeed, I think has been kind of that benchmark of University of Phoenix throughout its history. 
And it sounds like you're among the first in higher ed to really put the students first before the actual curriculum. And now when we have conversations like this with other higher ed institutes, especially here in Arizona, I feel like I'm finally now hearing them kind of the same, the same thing. We're, we're, we're asking the students what they need, and we're designing programs and degrees around those needs. And so I think, yeah, you know, people are starting to catch up a little bit. I am one of those graduates. I, I mentioned that early on, told you a little bit about my story before the on-air button went on. So I, you took me back to my commencement just a <laughs> minute ago. I remember standing there in my cap and gown around my cohort, cohort study buddies, who now have become lifelong friends. That was back in 97. Mm -hmm. And my fairly newborn daughter on one hip and holding the hand of my (laughs) two-year-old and at the same time was an assistant principal for the Kyrene School District and had to go back for a master's degree if I wanted to continue advance, not only in pay scale, but also as a a leader within the institute. So for me, there was no other choice Mm -hmm. but to do evening learning. And the idea of working with students alongside me from different areas and and industries was a pretty powerful experience, especially because all I ever thought I wanted to do was be a K-12 teacher and an administrator. So to open up for organizational development, which was my master's degree, felt really powerful to be in a conversation over over against case studies. Just again, really got to immerse myself into that, uh, that education and very proud of that experience. Well, so that's a great story. Yeah. And I'm glad we're being recorded because I'm going to copy that and probably snip it and use it elsewhere. Very good. Do, and we, when we let you do that, yeah. I, I love that. Uh, you both, I believe, have been there for quite some time. Is that right? I think I've been there for almost close to 20 years now. That's a long time. Really and I've so, been there 22 years. Wow. And have you known each other almost the duration of time, been in the similar roles? Probably maybe the last 10 years or last so. We worked a lot more yeah. closely together. Yeah. Yeah. But, so let's talk about specifically about your roles and and what you focus on uh, on your your day in and day out. You okay starting for us, Mark? Yeah, sure, of course. So I'm the vice provost of strategy, which most people will probably hear that and go, "What is that?" Yeah. And so uh, the vice provost of strategy is actually the the wingman for our provost, which is the chief academic officer, identifying the different innovative items or critical path things that we can do to transform the educational experience for our students. So on a day to day basis, I can be working on things things from choosing different educational technologies to improve our classroom environment, working with our technology partners in order to improve our student services outcomes, and then running the gamut from preparing board materials, regulatory briefs, et cetera. So I'm kind of a jack of all trades, but the the reality is it's really looking at what the future of what our institution needs from an academic landscape and pivoting and adjusting on those needs to, to again, serve our mission of of, uh, making sure our working adults get the best education we can provide. It's been a long journey and it's been a great journey of 22 years. I actually started uh, without any gray hair in my beard, um, (laughs) taking calls just uh, ordering transcripts, students ordered transcripts from me. I was very process oriented and I had no, no thought that I was going to be 22 years later in higher education, but the power of talking to the students and seeing the value of helping them achieve their dreams made me just want to continue to work for the university. And I've, I've kind of gone where I've been called and, and it's led to this point, really helping the institution in the academic and strategy space. So it's been, it's an amazing journey and I've been able to meet wonderful people like stand up over here. I'm going to, I'm going to, cut and paste that story. That was great. Really, I would imagine with those conversations day in, day out, mm-hmm. this was enrollment, right? It was, it was the, they've actually taken transcripts to go to their next uh, next degree, or they were sending them in to be evaluated for transfer credit and their baccalaureate degree. They had taken courses at another university and wanted to know where they were applied. And so I was 
You got to hear yeah. where, where they're at in their life and why it's important to them. Yeah. And it sounds like really inspired to say, hmm, we're making a difference. Yes, yes. Yeah. Especially when some students would have transferred credits in like 20 years ago. They had gone to an institution 20 years ago and saying, can I get anything for this? And in a lot of cases, we're able to make that happen. And that would uh, enable them to get their degree faster and for less cost because we're transferring in the credits. Incredible. Can you beat that story? <laughs> not even close. <laughs> what, not that you need to. <laughs> what What is your history and, and your experience? So mine, I think I started out with my story was really one of uh, coming to University of Phoenix as kind of a summertime job. You know, I had just graduated from Arizona State and I saw the job posting for uh, what was called a finance counselor at the time. And really the role was to help students through uh, their finances, right? So I'm like, hey, you know what? This might look good on my resume. So I figured, let me go ahead and apply. Fast forward 20 years later, and I feel like I've been in education in one way, shape, or form for pretty much my entire life since kindergarten now, right? <laughs> so I, uh, I started out at University of Phoenix really kind of being in what I'll call a lot of the student support roles, like student-facing roles, like as a counselor, finance advisor, and really helping students stay motivated and engaged and really helping them overcome obstacles, find solutions when they're, when they're struggling, right? So... It's evolved since then. So being in student-facing roles, I've kind of moved into administrative roles and now currently working with our, um, call them our user-centric empowered product teams that are really engaging with students to help them take control of their careers. And it's a focus that we've had, I think, over the last two or three years now, what we call our career services for life commitment and really helping students put that education to use. And similar to Mark, I think the most fulfilling aspects are actually engaging with students, right? And hearing those stories and seeing the success stories and those aha moments. And we've had a lot of them over the last 20 years. So not as good as Mark's oh, story. It's fantastic. But it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's both of you have inspiring stories. Uh, and obviously on the tails or the backs of folks who are benefiting from the university and their experience and knowing that, that again, you guys are making a big difference. I mentioned that I went to University of Phoenix for my master's. Uh, is there a percentage um, of how many students are there for a bachelor's degree versus coming back for a secondary, you know, in the second degree or is it pretty much the same? Yeah, the majority of our students are at the undergraduate level, which yeah. includes the associate and baccalaureate degrees. Oh, associate degrees as yeah. well. We, okay. we, have a, we have a small amount of associate degrees we offer, but uh, at the undergraduate level. And then, you know, we have a, a, a decent portion uh, that do graduate level degrees, whether it's master's degrees. And we also offer doctoral degrees as well, too. But the yeah. majority of, of the students kind of start in that kind of undergraduate space. One of the, the things that's really interesting about the institution, though, is we have a lot of students that because of our educational model and design, they actually finish their baccalaureate degree and come to their master's degree at our institution and, and continue forward because it fit, it worked, and it was the right thing for them. So we, we love to see that and those type of stories. Talk to us a little bit about location, right? So again, for me, back in 96, I drove to the university and did my work there every day and then took care of my homework on the weekends and case studies and all that good stuff to learn about business. And I don't believe, well, we talked about this. You joked about it. Back then, there was an online or remote program, but you, you they have to send you discs, <laughs> Please tell me that's not still happening. No, no, I mean, I mean, if you really wanted it, I'm sure I'd figure it out for you. <laughs> right. If you really wanted, like, we're a that thumb accommodating. Drive. Yes, indeed. But yes, when distance education started on online, in certain cases, we'd have to send floppy disks to students. And and now, at that time, of course, our footprint was largely physical-based campuses. And then, as online began to grow, and also access to 
broadband and those other things, we've actually seen a shift in the market where working adults have voted with their feet and they want to go to online because it's even more convenient than having to go to a campus one night a week. And in your program, you likely went to a campus one night a week and um, for five weeks for very intensive studies uh, and group work in between. I'm sure you remember the group work. I can see the smile. (laughs) And within that process over time, that was very convenient because it, it allowed at least working adults to have time during the week and focus their studies as they needed to in between. But even that one night a week, you never know what's going to happen. And so with online, especially uh, what's called asynchronous learning, which is where you don't necessarily have to be real time in the same place at the same time, students have found that's in our working adult space, the best way to imbibe the information, learn and move forward. And, And our majority of our students actually go online at this point. And it's you know, been a function of them just increasing that capacity. And, and the market has seen that too. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, when I started online was kind of, you know, people were doing it, but not much. Now, every single institution has some sort of online sort of learning. If, if they don't, they're, they're folding. Yeah. They, they can't keep up. Yeah. And if you, if you really want to see those floppy disks, we, we do, do have, have a hallway with the timeline of the evolution of the university. We do on campus and you can see the, the one of those original floppy disks. I do want to, I can picture what they look like. Certainly I've had a lot of experiences with floppy disks, but that would be a neat uh, timeline to see. Fantastic. So geographically inside the U.S. as well as outside the U.S. students both. You can attend outside the U.S. because yeah. it's not location specific. Yeah. Now, uh, most of our students are in the United States. But you can travel abroad while you're doing your studies. There, there's just different things with international education and the different degree requirements. And, you know, that that's a whole complex world itself in sure. regards to the different systems. But we do have students who attend from, you know, Latin American countries, European countries, et cetera. But the majority of our students are, are U.S.-based. And are there programs? I, so I had started off uh, in ed leadership thinking I was going to stay within the school district and then had an opportunity to work at a, a business school partnership with Kyrene and Intel mm-hmm. where they donated the land right here in, in the Tempe Chandler area. And I started thinking, oh, I think business would be really kind of a cool transition for me. So I got my degree in organizational development instead. So education, business, administration, are there other what other programs are wildly popular with your 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 uh, working adult students? So we also have nursing, healthcare. That's right. IT is really popular right now, and so those are kind of our main main staples: business, education, healthcare, IT, and plenty of degrees within those buckets. Yes. Yeah. Good. Chris slid in here. Yes, Chris, very Chris showed up. Stealth-like. How are you? Um, wonderful. Yeah. Thank, so, you for having me thank you for joining us. I did tee it up uh, in the beginning of our program that you would be joining us. I know you had a meeting, so I'm so grateful for you to, to screech over here. I don't even want to know what speed you, you drove. <laughs> I have paid all speed laws from, <laughs> Good. Uh, from surprise to Tempe. Yes. Were you really in surprise? Yeah, I was. Dude, I was. nice job. All right. Chris Herring, ladies and gentlemen, head product, head of product for curriculum with Stride Incorporated. Uh, with Mark and Sendip, what we've done the last couple minutes is really just get to know the company, the organization, University of Phoenix, and then each of them as professionals. I would love for you to have the same opportunity, and then I want to really get into the conversation around what's trending, what's happening in online education, and all the good stuff. Because Stride Incorporated is slightly different. Uh, you show up differently, right? The different yeah. age level and age group, and yet you have your roots with University of Phoenix as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I actually, I've, I've worked with these two gentlemen for most of my adult life. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the easy way to put said. it, right? 
I've actually, I was at the University of Phoenix for, uh, for 15 years, pretty much fresh out of college. I was living in LA and I said, this is unsustainable. I got to go somewhere else. And so Phoenix was calling and, and uh, joined University of Phoenix oh, a little over 15 years, about 16 years ago now. Fell in love with online education. I knew I wanted to be in the education space and didn't know exactly how. I also knew I wanted to get a graduate degree. And University of Phoenix was like, we will pay for a graduate degree. And I was like, that's where I'm working. Uh, so I came out here to Phoenix and kind of put down roots. Uh, so, yeah, I got married, had kids, and uh, the whole time, you know, staying with, with kind of the journey of online education. And then this year, made the leap over to Stride. Yeah, and Stride is kind of the other side of the coin with online ads. So University right. of Phoenix really pioneered online education all the way back in the late 80s. And then obviously through the 90s and then when it boomed in the early 2000s. Stride is actually similar to how Apollo Group used to be, right? It's, it's the parent company. And so we do have several different education subsidiaries. Um, the largest is K-12. That's that's not an abbreviation. That's the name is K-12, right? So if you go to our website, it's k12.com. Um, uh, awesome domain to own. And uh, and so that's obviously focused on kindergarten through 12th grade, your, your traditional K-12 block. Um, but just like University of Phoenix, it's overwhelmingly almost entirely online. And so, you know, the same challenges that, that I learned to tackle at University of Phoenix, seeing what they did to overcome you know, cultural biases and traditional learning methods and lack of technology to, to handle distance and um, all of those things, uh, and now seeing that applied in the K-12 realm. So a lot of new challenges, but I love that, that, that new challenge that I get. But obviously, you know, with University of Phoenix, I have a deep love for everything that we've done there. And uh, I, th I think I had some people talk to me this week, like, you're going back with a company you don't work for a university you don't work for <laughs> and uh, and you and you're going to you're going to talk about them but you know that's university of phoenix is a unique place it's an amazing place and i love now that i'm at stride and i i would say the same thing since being there that that there's this passion for education to see things be done differently to challenge the norms in a rapid fashion and say we're going to take it further and then when you get to that next step take it a little bit further again so uh, university of phoenix is amazing doing with adult learners you know, at K-12 and at Stride now, doing it with five to 18-year-olds nice. uh, is, is, is the next challenge. So, but I love it because that also means for me, I know that I'm going to impact people that are going to learn online the time they're five to the time they're 18. And by the time they get to a University of Phoenix, that will be their new norm. And that will be the new traditional and, you know, I'll be able to look back and see at the end of my career that I've spanned that entire life cycle of turning an industry fully over and setting the new paradigm. So, yeah, so it's a little bit about. Oh, I love it. Great, question. great way to kind of tie it together. And for our listeners and viewers, we had, I think, Chris, we had reached out to you through LinkedIn yeah. originally yeah. and said, hey, you seem like an interesting guy doing interesting things. And we always like to extend an invitation once we've vetted somebody to say, who else would you like to share the spotlight with? And, and to your point, uh, you included this crew here, which is super neat because the rest of our conversation is really going to be around online learning, the trends and that sort of thing. What I'm hearing and what each of you have shared is that education has now become more accessible for people. I mean, folks, folks, of course, have to have internet and computers and that sort of thing. And we have a lot of great organizations, fortunately, and school districts working to make sure that at least our younger students have that accessibility. 
really people can learn from anywhere. <laughs> you don't have to have a vehicle or live in a large you know, metropolis area to get to a university or even to a school. I had shared about Kyrene, my Kyrene experience. I don't know if you're familiar with P uh, Pinnacle Education Incorporation here in, in Arizona. Back in the early 2000s, I think, I can't do my timeline, I was asked to be the vice president of um, school sites, eight different physical sites here in Arizona that served students who weren't well-suited or didn't feel comfortable in traditional uh, education for whatever reason. Maybe they had a child when they were in high school. Maybe they were an athlete traveling. Maybe they, uh, you know, had some behavior issues, but they'd come to Pinnacle as one of the first charter high schools, and it was an online program. And I, I don't know, I don't remember who we used, but uh, I, I was responsible for that. So similar to the three of you, I've spent a little bit of time not only learning um, online education, but also being an advocate for it and helping people have access that they need. So this is a fun conversation. Let's talk about what's changed in the world of education since COVID. We, you know, I, I feel like almost every conversation we have here now a couple years out on the outside of the heaviness of COVID, I know it's still there, of course. What have you noticed is changing in education since the pandemic? Good things, bad things, neutral things? I'll start. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that's become really apparent to me, we all work in slightly different places, Mark, uh, Sandip, and myself, you know, in the technology side, in the, in the kind of the new product, the innovation side, uh, you know, we have this concept, we call it crossing the chasm. It's this idea that when you do something new, like when University of Phoenix went online in the 80s and 90s, or K-12 education online now, when you do something new, there's those early adopters, and then there's kind of everybody else. Mm -hmm. And then there's a big gap in the middle. And at some point, people have to kind of jump over that gap bravely to show that, okay, this can work. What I think I'm, I'm seeing is that the pandemic kind of threw everybody into the Grand Canyon of disruption, right? And everything was different. Education, especially parents, students, teachers, administrators, everyone was forced into really uncomfortable situations. And I know for my own kids, my wife was running a preschool and kindergarten at the time, and it was all kinds of new problems. And she'd been doing it for a decade. And it was like, everything was new. Um, my own kids in elementary school, my nephews in middle school and high school, they were all going through these, these shared experiences. And what happened was it really sucked for everybody. Mm -hmm. It really just universally, right? Nobody was ready for this. There wasn't technology. There wasn't enough bandwidth or hardware. There was no way for people in rural communities to succeed, right? And, and so, you know, you went through this really, really challenging 12 to 18 to 24 months, depending on, on the state and county you were in. But what I've seen happen afterwards is, everyone got exposed to a lot of new possibilities. And now, especially in education, things that in the past would have been seen as really disruptive and you really would have had to drive adoption, compared to COVID, they're not that bad. And so the acceptance of new technology, of new ways of doing things is, is way uh, easier to get to. And so that's exciting because education has never been a space where disruption or new things are readily accepted, no. um, right? Like for, for, the, for about 100 years, we did the things the same way, and, and then the internet happened. And so, you know, the fact that we still use textbooks printed on paper, I think all of us are like, well, that's never going away. Actually, I think it's probably done. It, I think oh, it oh, really it's, is. It's some schools, it's yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, and I, th I think, in, you know, the next few years, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like, you, you want to hold a book? And there's, there's pros and cons, but the idea that we went from, 
you had to have it, right? And it, it, everyone demanded it. And to now, in a course of a couple of years, nobody's asking for it. And it wasn't because they were pursuing it's because the pandemic forced it. We had it. no choice. Yeah. yeah. How about from the higher ed perspective or even University of Phoenix specifically, what, what did COVID present to you? And because you were already well positioned. Yeah. So Chris is spot on on the first thing. First of all, it made that gap a lot shorter. We we found out we had a lot more friends who wanted to learn about online real quick when COVID hit. And that you're was like, oh, uh, now like, you're interested. Yeah. So I got phone calls from people I didn't expect during that time. And because everyone had to do some sort of distance learning and what they also found out, it's harder than you thought it was um, to get the learning done right. It is not a matter of flipping a Zoom you know, chat on and talking to people across that. You have to do different work to have people learn. And it's a mixture of synchronous, which is real time versus asynchronous learning. It's a, a mixture of both. And it's a different way of assessing. And all of those things pushed a lot of institutions to think about learning differently um, from that perspective. And they're still trying to think about that and learn and, and asking those questions. So that, that gap of where we, you know, as an online, mostly institution had felt like, okay, you know, here's where we are, here's where most of the market's at, that shrunk a lot. So that also pushes us as an institution for specifically University of Phoenix to think of things about more innovatively. And also the biggest question that, that started popping up in people's minds outside of technology was the value of education at that point in time. COVID started changing people's perceptions on what am I getting out of this? I'm going to have to be going to multiple schools. I'm going to have to be more mobile. And that's where we've kind of looked at some different things of giving people value for their education, especially in a career work space, in a different way. And Sandip's team, and Chris used to work on, on that, were looking at different ways of taking our learning and some of the things we were doing and translate that into outcomes for students in the, the career workspace. So I don't know if you want to no, talk a, a little bit about that, but yeah. COVID helped become part of the impetus for some of that. I think there was a lot of like when COVID during that time frame, we heard a lot of things like skills gap, great resignation, great reorganization, right? There was a lot of disruption for a lot of companies and organizations. And to the point you just made, it kind of created this demand for shorter form learning, like micro learning, right? I need to learn these skills. I need to get value quickly so that I can get that job. You know, a lot of people were displaced, right? With essential jobs and everything else at the time. And it's, I think you shared, Karen, right? When you were looking to learn new skills because you needed to to either move up the ladder or have that economic mobility, a lot of our students were in that same boat, right? Quickly, like, holy crap, I need to do something different. How can I get there as quickly as possible? So I think it opened up opportunities for, I'll call it learning institutions to really kind of look at what it is that they were doing, not necessarily only to drive completion rates, but really focus on truly those learning outcomes is what I'm teaching, ultimately helping my students, my customers obtain what they're seeking in the end, which is that, that economic mobility, putting that education to use, right? So I think with a lot of that disruption came a lot of opportunity and a lot of good as well. I think that that we saw that in the corporate world as well. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. you, you saw it at the cultural at large, the individual seeking things differently from their own personal learning. But I think, you know, from a workport, uh, workforce perspective, companies started saying, well, how am I going to upskill my, my current workforce who wasn't ready to be remote? Or maybe my company wasn't ready to be remote. And then how do I develop them now that I can't send them to a conference or I can't, you know, they're not able to go to class or, or whatever it was. And so I think that spurred on, it was, it was a real catalyst to the corporate world to say, we we got to rethink this for ourselves as well. So the individual and kind of the, the workforce piece. Yeah, that learning and development, reskill, upskill, really yeah. made people think about it a different way. Let's talk about that a little further because you've each kind of alluded to it. 
first of all, how do you define skills-aligned learning and curriculum, and why does that work for University of Phoenix? And I'm curious from a K-12 perspective, too, some of the conversations we've had with school district leadership, we are, again, changing the paradigm on how we teach. So can you define that for us again? And then let's talk about why that works for University of Phoenix. I'd love to hear the connection with K-12, too. Yeah, I'll kick it off in regards to what skills-aligned learning was. And, and to, be, to be clear, University of Phoenix was always teaching students skills uh, and for the workplace because we were geared to working adults. But uh, uh, right before the pandemic started, we as academics sat down and decided to look at all of our courses and our curriculum and say, how can we take these courses and translate them into in-demand skills in the workplace? So you have a course in accounting, what are skills generally accepted to apply accounting principles, financial planning, et cetera. What are the skills that not only the marketplaces are looking for, but also talking to our faculty and industry advisory councils, like what is needed in the workplace? So we we have a curriculum, we have a textbook, we can look at that, but also what do you need in the workplace? And, and trying to triangulate that together and taking our course designs so that each course has three skills built into it. So it's very clear to the student of the things I'm learning and then build, which has really been helpful in the world of AI, authentic assessments that aren't papers. They're they're what students would do in their job. And the course content was all rewritten to position it as you're learning these things, which here's your academic content from a textbook. Here's your practitioner faculty who works in the field because we use practitioner faculty. And here's an assessment of things that you likely would be asked to do if you were doing accounting for, you know, a, a company or a business or an organization. And we started that process in 20, late 2018 to start doing that, not knowing anything else was going to happen. We just felt this is the right thing to do. And for us, as we like to use the word lean into, lean into who we are. Um, and it's unlocked tremendous possibilities for us. But skills aligned curriculum is looking at a course and even, even general education courses like, you know, foundations learning. There are skills to be learned and soft skills and communication or critical thinking that are really important to employers today that we're putting in front of our students saying, this is what you're learning in this class. Not only are you being, you know, exposed to it and learning academic content and broadening your horizons? These are the things you can take away and talk to employers about. So that's skills-aligned curriculum in you know, kind of a, a simplistic nutshell. Chris and Sandip, I want to have you just chime in on, on some of those things in your, your perspective. No, I think uh, going back to what we talked about earlier, being really student-centric, one of the things that we learned right away is that there's this mindset that students typically have where it's, I can't do anything now. We call it inertia, right? Like I got to get this degree before I can even apply for the next job. And oftentimes, I think there's statistics out there, Harvard Business did one a couple of years ago, like 42, 43 something percent underemployed when they graduate. And we want to really kind of figure out what can, what can we do to break that. And I think the work that Mark and his team have done with really embedding skills into the curriculum and the courses gives us that kind of mechanism or avenue to help students truly understand the value they're gaining along the way. So from my perspective with the product teams that, that I work with and worked with Chris on is, how do we really help students career early and career often is what we call that, right? Like career really, ready and career often. Career early and career, career often, early right? Like leverage those skills and try to identify opportunities to put those skills to use so you start gaining experience while you're in school, right? So how do we break that inertia? And I think helping students understand that value they're getting with every course mm-hmm. really helps to do that versus I only get value when I get my degree. Yeah. It's this is the equity that you're gaining along the way so that when you get that degree, hopefully you have work experience to go along with that degree so you're able to step forward in that career journey versus taking that first step, right? I don't know if you want to add anything. 
Yeah, I would say one thing that I can I can attest to in my time at University of Phoenix was there's a level of empathy for the students that that's really unparalleled from anywhere else I've seen. I'd kind of equate it to like if you've ever had really good healthcare, like you've had healthcare provider that just they understood you and they wanted to know who you were and they weren't just diagnosing and solving, right? That's kind of how I equate the leadership and the and the, and the people at University of Phoenix. Why I stayed so long was because they have this deep level of empathy. And, and when that comes to this idea of skill gap and inertia, like, like Mark and Sandup were talking about, you know, we came to this understanding of, you know, putting ourselves in our students' shoes. And a lot of them are first generation students. A lot of them are, you know, in their forties and their fifties, they have children, they have, they have jobs and life is already tough. School is already new and foreign. That idea of inertia is more than even your typical, your typical 22, 23, 24 year old college graduate has this inertia problem of what do I do next? But they also kind of have all of life in front of them and they usually don't have all of that other going on. Our students have so much more. And so this idea of, you know, inertia became just so important of if you've got a lot of things kind of holding a lot of weight there, it takes even more to get going forward. And so that's really where that started, that idea of understanding who they were and really understanding their life and what it's, what it's like for them. I think that was the key for me when we, when we went down this strategy. It did start with curriculum first. It started with the learning and what are they learning? And then it came, okay, how do we help that make that practical to them? And how do they practically use that to take a step forward? Uh, I know we're going to talk about the, the career navigator that, that kind of came out of that, that thought process. But the idea really was we've got to help them get through you can call it imposter syndrome, right? You can call it cultural bias. Nobody in my family does this. Nobody in my fill-in-the-blank demographic does this. And show them the possible and show them that, no, you can be more than whatever your common experiences has been. And you don't have to wait for that. You can do it now. And that's the, I think, the key thing that, that we started to hit on was that you don't have to wait. It doesn't have to come later. You can take a different path and you can take that different path today so that when you graduate, if you're in a degree program, you're already well down that road and you're already seeing a new reality for yourself. And I think that that was transformational for what the university did. How about from Stride's perspective, Chris? Uh, you know, we're talking about a very different learner, right, from 5 to 18. And the online learner, how do you provide that real-time learning experience for them? I, and the reason I ask that, as you all were ex- describing this, I'm thinking back to my bachelor's degree at NAU. Great program as an educator up there, right in the late 80s. And yet, when I got my first teaching job and I got my first assignment as a third grade teacher, I felt like a good majority of the things that I had learned for the four years that I was there were not the things I needed to know. (laughs) They weren't. And so this is what we're talking about. How do we make sure there isn't that gap and that people are prepared? So from a a K-12 perspective, where does this skill-based learning fit in? Yeah, so so one of the things that attracted me, I mean, it was going to take a lot. Sandup knows this. We had these conversations. It was going to take a lot to get me away from University of Phoenix. It sounds like it. And uh, one of the things that attracted me to, to, to Stride and to K-12 was they did have a focus on what they were calling career readiness education. Because again, the learner is young, right? And so it's the idea of being ready for a career when you graduate high school. And so they have uh, a whole career readiness track that you can go on. Now it is customized. So different states will have different programs because there's different industries that are prevalent in those states. So what somebody does in Tennessee is going to be different than what they do in, in Southern California. 
And so it's very customized to the state and it's very focused, similar to University of Phoenix on private partnerships. So companies, corporations that are saying, this is our workforce need. This is what we need students to learn. So if you're going to go into agribusiness in Kentucky, because they grow a lot of grass, that's a, that's kind of a niche industry. Well, agribusiness is different than semiconductor business. So here in Arizona, we're probably going to need some crew readiness education on what is semiconductor business because it's going to be a big deal yeah. for the next 20 years in Arizona with the investment in, in semiconductors. But in Kentucky, it might not be. And so the programs are going to be different. So those private partnerships are a big part of it. I think the other thing is the immersion and making sure that you're able to simulate that environment. So we are leaning in to some some tech that you know, you don't do as much of at the adult learner because you can go experience it more. But if you're, if you're, you know, 14 or 15 and you're at home learning, uh, so we're looking at augmented reality. So we're doing a lot with augmented reality with 3D models. And we're doing it in all of our curriculum, but in the career area, it helps a lot. Um, we're also doing some things with virtual reality, which is becoming more and more normal in certain industries, in the defense industry and, and with the military, also in healthcare, it's becoming super common. Any high stress reaction type job, it helps to train on those things because you can simulate real world environments where you have to react and respond. But that's some of the stuff we're looking at at the K-12. It is a different challenge. You know, instead of just someone with a path and you're getting them to take a step, there is an element of exposure, mm-hmm. okay. um, especially if, you know, if you're taking a kid from, you know, rural Kansas and trying to show them the possibilities, you do want them to expose to other things and, and see what are the other potentials out there. I will say we at, at Stride do have a different mindset on career pathing. And we do believe that college isn't for everybody. <laughs> and But that doesn't necessarily mean you should just go to a trade school either. There are other technical disciplines that you can lean into and you can start doing that in high school. Um, and that's really where we ramp it up is high school. But we do have industry-recognized certifications that we offer in Python, in JavaScript, in um, other disciplines, in healthcare disciplines. One of our subsidiaries is um, a, a medical training provider called MedCerts. You can take MedCert courses in high school. And so it's the same courses you might take if you don't want to go into a four-year program, but you want to go into healthcare. You might go to a school like MedCerts. Well, we don't make you wait to leave high school to do it. You can take those same college-level courses in high school. So that's kind of the approach we've taken is helping expose them to different pathways. When they get into the later, you know, sophomore, junior year, help them pick a pathway And then if they want to pursue that with professional education, they can do that in high school and they can become very career ready by the time they graduate. Mm. Super impressive. You had alluded a little bit to a topic that we're going to talk about, but I'm forgetting the name that something was kind of born out of this whole thing. The career navigator. Can we talk about the career navigator? I'm looking through my notes as Chris is talking like, I know, I know I saw it here somewhere. Career navigator. Yeah. Career navigator is uh, a product that our product teams Chris was a member of the team at the time, really kind of put together and continues to evolve. But it's really about what we talked about, right? Helping students break that inertia at whatever point of the career journey they're in. And I think one of the things that we learned from that empathy and really trying to get that deep student understanding is that everybody's at different points Mm -hmm. on that career journey, right? Someone may be looking to move up that ladder. Someone may be looking to change careers and not really knowing what to do. And the Navigator is a suite of products, I'll call it. It helps with career exploration, helps you visualize and understand your skill attainment that you're gaining in the classes, and helps you identify opportunities to put those skills to use, right? So no matter what step of the way you're at, no matter what step of the career journey you're in, I should say, 
the navigator is intended to really help you identify what that next step is and then help you get that access, the support that you need to take that next step so that students are breaking that inertia and they continue to move forward on that career journey as they go to school, right? And we talk about skills and you're earning skills. And I think that it's harder to kind of enjoy the journey if you don't know where you're going. You know, like a five-hour road trip and you have no clue where you're going. It's, <laughs> it's rough, especially with young kids. Like we all have. <laughs> right. But if you know you're going to Disneyland, it's a little bit more fun, right? So I think when we're helping students identify what that next step is, here are the in-demand skills for those next steps. Here are the skills that you're gaining along the way with each of your courses. It kind of builds a little bit of that motivation. I feel like that students need to kind of see that they're getting closer and they know where they're going, you know? That is really brilliant. I'm taking my thought process back to COVID again. Um, in addition to owning Phoenix Business Radio X, I'm also a mind-body-spirit coach for executive leaders and typically mid-managers. And COVID, you know, it kind of uh, had us all take this crazy pause we spoke to. And people were kind of shaken to what's next for me. And when we lose sight, to the point that you're making, send it. when we lose sight of what's possible for me, and if I can't see what's out here and I can't see myself in it, I'm lost. I'm flailing. So how brilliant that you've got this navigator to help people kind of tether themselves to what's possible for the future so that they can then, when the, when the, the work gets hard or the difficulties take place or the learning is, is challenging, at least I have this out here that I can see uh, where I'm headed. It's brilliant. Exactly. Brilliant. Anything to add around the Navigator? Yeah, one of the, the superpowers of the Navigator is built around the data that we created. So as, as Sandip talked about the journey, Perfect. going back to how we designed the programs and the courses, each course has three skills tied to each credit hour. So you remember three credit courses always in the semester, yeah. three, three credits, three skills you earn in the course. You see a map of that from the beginning when you start your degree program, and that feeds all of the career tool engine. So as you complete courses, earn those skills, that feeds that engine. And it one part of the career navigators is a job recommendations engine. So if you have X, Y, and Z skills, it scrapes different job postings that are out there and says, hey, you've now earned X, Y, Z skills. You want to look at that. And that changes the biggest thing for us, changes the value proposition wow. for students where they are feeling value not for four years away from when they graduate from the degree, which we want them to feel, but they're getting that value along the way and seeing how that translates into other things to whether they want to advance their career or happy with their career or build for the future. All of this was kind of systematically designed in order to do these things in the future and other things we probably haven't thought of. And that was, I think, one of our, our biggest wins of saying, this is how we're going to do this, and it's going to feed everything he builds. And as a product model, when, when Sandip and, and Chris talk about product, that brings not only the academics, but the technology people together. It's not handing things over a fence, which is another mm -hmm. amazing thing that we're doing as an institution. And that's why Sandip and I are locked arm in arm, and he's had a, a great time, I think, working with me because I have with him. And if he answers differently, <laughs> we'll cut that part. You can kick him under the table. <laughs> I'm a little too far away. Yeah. <laughs> now, I feel like you just kind of touched on it a little bit, right? That personalized learning. And then that learning becomes meaningful to me because I know where I'm going, but it also as an institution and you as a provost side, right? You're, you're geared towards, you know, you're invested in me being successful, right? Your focus isn't just how do I get you to graduation and how do I drive completion rates, but it's more about how do I best position you to be successful and you know, being in the K-12 space, I actually thought about you this week. Um, I had a parent-teacher conference, if I can share the story. With <laughs> yes, you. please. And Ms. Nelson, New Vistas, shout out, I do pay attention at the parent-teacher conferences, <laughs> but she she talked about leveraging data 
right? It was a little bit different data, but she had kids in her class that are a little bit on the younger side, right? It's this kindergarten, but she had the kids that were born a little bit later in the year. So they're, they're younger from the data that she got from their preschool teacher. She was able to adjust her learning plan, right? She's like, hey, normally I have 30 to 35 minute sections, but I know I have younger kids and I know their attention spans are a little bit shorter. So I'm reducing my, my sections or my portions to 15 to 20 minute sessions so I can keep them engaged along the way. And my light bulb went off of like, ah, look at leveraging data to adjust your uh, teaching style, right? Because your focus is on, I want them to learn, not my job is just to teach, right? So I think one of the cool things that I hope that we continue to see is really breaking out that silos, right? The K-12 and it's existed and I'll be the first to admit it. I don't know a lot about K-12 until you moved, went stride and now we start talking about it. It's like, oh, I had no clue. But I hope that's one of the trends that we continue to see is break into the silos. K-12, higher ed, we talk about ed tech, job tech, and really kind of seeing that fusion that's all about outcomes for our students and making sure that they're getting the value of the education that we're, we're teaching them or providing them. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And, and having been on both sides of the fence now, uh, you know, I always had the exposure to K-12 because, you know, the work my wife did, right? I was always in the K-12 space. Other members of my family, sister-in-law, my mother, they all worked in K-12. You know, I worked in higher ed. I knew the problems of higher ed. I knew some of the problems of K-12. But now seeing there, there is a, a divide. There is a, you know, a lack of synergy system-wide, I think, is the best way to describe it. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's private higher ed or public higher ed or private K-12 or public K-12, there isn't a connection, right? I think there's a genuine desire from all parties to say, I, you know, I, I wish we could do it better. But I don't think the scale lends itself. You know, University of Phoenix, I knew the challenges of 50 different state regulators. We had that constantly, mm -hmm. right? We had, oh, this for this program in this state, you got to add this class or these three courses, or you can't say this, or you have to use, you know, even sometimes different systems. Uh, I have the same thing at, at Stride with K-12 is we have different platforms in different states. We have completely different curricula in certain states. And so I think, you know, if you talk to two superintendents of education in two different states, they would totally be on the same team and doing things totally different. And so we've had the, the issue in the past, you know, the common core, right? That was something in K-12. It was supposed to do this alignment of all the states together. And then that would lead to a common understanding for higher ed. And it, didn't work at all, right? It's kind of best intentions on on a road to disaster. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I think the desire is there, but I'm an advocate for the private sector. And I'm, I'm passionate about that in education because it becomes a political hot topic. When you bring up University of Phoenix, not everybody is enthusiastic about the work we do. They're not, right? Same, I would say, with private education. Some people do not believe that's where education should go. I love the experience I've had professionally because I get to talk about it from experience. I grew up in public schools. My mom still works at the LA County school I went to. It was not a safe school. <laughs> it was not a good school. It's not a well-funded school. And so it's not like I came from a private school background or some other privileged background. Now I came from a school that was struggling in a place that's struggling. And my mom's still there working, you know, 20 years later. And so having that background and saying, but I also know that private even private taxpaying institutions can really contribute to the greater thought process, to changing the narrative for everybody. And I think we're tempted to take this altruistic approach sometimes of, 
public is for everybody's good and it's and it's the only path to equity in education. And I actually think my career path has been proof that University of Phoenix and Stride and other organizations like that actually play a vital, irreplaceable role in changing the narrative and, and kind of advancing the ball forward in education. So yeah, I'm super passionate about it, as you can tell. I love it. How are your students and your faculty and really even the businesses responding to this model? So I want you to start because you do actually surveys with our students and, and do some of that on the Career Navigator. So I want you to start on that one, Sandy. Yeah, I'll, I'll share a story. That's okay. Yeah, of course. And I'm working, maybe it was one right before, before you went over to Stride. But I think one of the things that, that we learned a lot is those aha moments that we talked about before. And a lot of our, our project teams, they spend a lot of time doing discovery and really meeting and interviewing our students and really trying to understand what is it that you're truly trying to accomplish, right? Not just, do you like this or do you like that, but really get that empathy and what is it that you're trying to accomplish. And, and a lot of what we hear is, I'm not ready. I don't think I'm prepared. Um, I'm not confident, right? I, it's not my time to your point. I'm juggling a lot of things and it's easy to put it on the back burner, right? I'll get to it later. I need my degree first. And for me, seeing the, the scenarios and the situations and the examples that I think we share usually every month in, on our, our calls around those light bulbs clicking for students, you know, where I think there was one, I won't use her name, but where she talked about she had applied for jobs and she had been rejected. And she made up her mind that I'm not going to apply again because I need my degree. No one's going to see me. No one's even going to interview me until I have my degree. But she went to our job explorer and she saw these jobs that she hadn't seen before. And she saw the skills that were in demand. And she also saw the skills that she had checkmarked for her, you know? Because it was laid out in front of her. It was laid out there in front of her. Hey, these are the skills that are in demand. You have these skills. Here's what you need to be able to articulate that value, right? And it gave her that confidence that, you know what, let me apply. And she ended up getting that position. Mm -hmm. She's a manager at a logistics company. Actually, maybe forget the name of the company. It's not in Arizona. That's what to say. It's right on the load. But it's, uh, she's a manager at a logistics company. And it, it was all because of a simple thing of confidence. Right. right, And that's all it was with the, with the product design and everything else was to really give that student that nudge to break that inertia and really take that step. And now she's employed, gaining valuable work experience and completing her degree. And I think that's ultimately what we're, we're trying to work towards. So we see stories like that. And to me, that's the best type of feedback is when you actually see it put to use and see students really achieve that, that goal and their aspirations that they're working towards. Yeah, and I'll, I'll share another one. It was it was right before I left. And these, these guys will joke with me because right before I left, the last thing I did, we were at a leadership conference for, for the university and I'm on stage talking about what's next. And I'm like, don't you leave tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> you just can't get it out of your system, can well, you? Well, if, I mean, if you're passionate about what you do, I, you believe in it, right? You're not, yes. you know, you're not going to leave that on the table. But yeah, this story was, it was a, a, a gentleman that had just started. He was in his, his late 20s. So, you know, got a late start towards college like a lot of our students do. It was post-pandemic, obviously, since it was it was early 2023. And he said, look, he's like, my family did not want me to do this. He was only, you know, six months into his program, so just kind of into the equivalent of a second semester. He's like, they were like, this is dumb. College isn't worth it. They had flipped the script on the value of higher ed. And he was like, nobody in my family, my parents, my siblings, nobody wants me to do this. And he shared that he started using the Career Navigator. And it was showing them these jobs and he could see in his first couple of courses that he was getting skills in the area that he wanted to go into. And he's like, I can see it. I'm looking at my courses and I know I'm going to be earning these skills. And these are the ones that these companies want. And, he, you know, his words, which we didn't ask for this, was him kind of like sharing uh, effusively and, and kind of organically. He's like, 
I made the right decision and I know they were all wrong. I should be doing this. And so again, it goes back to that idea of inertia, but also again, that, that, that kind of built in bias in his, you know, group that he was with, you know, demographically where they were at, they did not believe spending money on education mattered. And he was battling that. And this showed him like, no, I can do more than what, than where I'm coming from. And I'm in the right place. And I should be, you know, I should keep going. So those kind of stories to us are, are what reminds us that we're doing the right thing for people, for our students, and that we do have a story to tell about why things should be done differently in education and in workforce development. It's perfect. Sandip, you alluded to it, right? It's that confidence that Navigator can can help provide that confidence. And I'm kind of picturing this student that you're talking about when things get tough and he or she has missed dinner or are late to getting to an event for a kid or whatever that thing is. And the family's like, really? <laughs> like, you know, the, again, this doesn't make sense. You're tired all the time. Whatever that stuff is that shows up on an emotional communicative level, relationship-wise, when somebody has that navigator in front of them and they can see the finish line and see the benefits of the, the time that they're putting in, then the people that they love and care about, it, it makes, it softens the blow a little bit is what I hear you saying. Yeah. Great, I think, great examples. I think that in a way it's almost redefining the value of, the de- of a degree. I don't know if you can yeah. touch on that a little bit, but I know, you know, we often hear the degrees under attack. We hear it all the time, right? LinkedIn companies are dropping degree requirements, et cetera. But yeah. I think the work you've done really kind of helps. It, it does because, and you'll hear things in the, the market like a comprehensive learner record or a learning employment record, which is really fueled by the type of data that we're creating of showing more than just you took a course in humanities, you took a course in accounting or math. And when we looked at this model and we started building the skills line curriculum, it was truly a value proposition change for us. We wanted students to have value for their degree in weeks, not years. The the whole totality of the degree is excellent, and that is important, and everyone should achieve that. But if you're not showing that value along the way of learning, and to your point, the effort, like, what did you get out of that last course you took? And I know probably everyone listening has taken a course and like, why the heck did I take that course? Our role is to try to recontextualize that for students to say, this is why we're asking you to take that course, the reason, and this is what you're gaining out of it. To to even share, and we we love this part, whether it's a badge or things on LinkedIn, when you earn skills, you can say, I earned this skill and put it on LinkedIn. You now just have a footprint and an impact to employers to say, I've just learned this thing. Or when we have our badges, which are micro-credentials that include multiple skills generally in a certain area. For example, in COVID, we created an emergency preparedness badge where students would earn multiple skills and they could share a badge on LinkedIn. um, And the badge would have information behind it on what the student learned and what the assessments were. So the employer could go, oh my gosh, they were put through a battery of A, B, and C, and they know this. That can be put out there. And that, again, changes how students view their education. And for a working adult, like you said, they need sometimes just something little to keep, whatever it is, because they've got kids, they've got their family members, they've got work, all those pressures, Mm -hmm. that little thing can change the game. And that's why we we are doing it. And I'd say the thing I'm surprised the most, and and Chris kind of brought it up in regards to sometimes people have different perceptions on, on different institutions. The thing that surprised me the most about this is people hear about this and what we're doing and they're like, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Like, and it is really, really cool. And it's because we're changing that that value proposition, that value stream for who we want to serve and what we think is right for our students. Phenomenal. 
we're almost at the end of our conversation. It goes super fast. I know Sandip's like, what? What the heck? How'd that happen? I want to I, I want to talk about tech trends or have you, I, I don't want to talk about them. I want you to talk about them. What are you seeing happening? What do you think is going to continue to shift and change in education within the next five years? Curious from both perspectives. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll start. Tech, tech is pretty much all I do now. <laughs> um, I work at, it's product, it's curriculum products, but but primarily, the the reason that, that that you know Stride was was looking for for someone like me to to come over was innovation. So I've I've primarily got five areas that I've been asked to drive innovation in education for K twelve, um, and it does share over into other other spaces. But virtual reality, augmented reality are two areas, and it's not just going to be K twelve. It's corporate training right now, it's professional development training. Like I said, military and and Department of Defense are big on it, and have seeing the proof and the evidence that it's effective. Uh, and you're going to see it more and more in higher ed because the technology is going to become more common. And old school, you'd look at something on a piece of paper and then you could see it on a screen. Well, now you can see it in your living room um, or on a, on a headset. So it is that next level of making things real for a learner. But, you know, we're also leaning into this idea of a metaverse. I can tell you at University of Phoenix, a challenge we've always had, we've solved it in various ways, you know, over my tenure there, was how do you connect people? Because when you leave school, you're going to work with others. And so just doing your work and learning it solo doesn't fully prepare you for the, the work environment because you're going to have to have interpersonal skills. Uh, and so we're big on that in the metaverse because we realize if you're going to take a student, a developing mind at young ages, out of a group setting like they get a traditional school, you have to still help them develop those crucial skills. So we are looking at how do you use the metaverse, which nobody's really defined, right? And Suck did a terrible job of defining it. Uh, and so we're having to define it for ourselves and we want it to have meaning. And so we're looking for the areas where it matters to, to have those interactions. Uh, if you're looking for something on, you want to go on our website and look at our K-12 zone. It's brand new this school year. It's obviously September. Our schools just started in August. Some of them are still starting in September, but they're getting their first taste of this new K-12 zone where students for the first time virtually can go to an actual virtual school that has a library and an art gallery and a, a study areas. They have counseling areas. They can talk to teachers there. They can access tutoring, but you're doing it together. So you can run into another student and actually have that conversation about what's going on. That's new. And then the biggest thing, and I'm, I, I, I want to know, because I've been gone for long enough now from University of Phoenix. I want to know what you all are doing with it. For me, it's AI. <laughs> I know it's buzzworthy, but we're leaning in heavy at Stride in every capacity. We're asking all of our brands, all of our departments, lean into AI in meaningful ways. You know, I was 10 minutes late joining here because our CEO said, can you present uh, to our executive team? Uh, two weeks ago, we did our first AI-only hackathon where everything mm -hmm. had to be AI. Got some great, great concepts that we're taking forward. We're actually going to build out over the next uh, next eight weeks. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun, but it also showed just the potential of all these ideas that were just tons of different versions of AI coming together to build out a concept. Um, it's going to change things a lot. We're putting up the guardrails. I did the hackathon and the next week legal put out their guidance. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> little cart before the horse. And so now we're going, okay, are we, are we good with these policies? But AI is huge. And what we, I think, all know is the access to information is at that next level. The internet was that first level of removing the barrier of distance and access. AI is the next one. Anybody can go on. Well, I think the top thing on GPT, right, is explain it like I'm a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. Any concept, no matter how complex now, somebody mm -hmm. can try and access and understand. The challenge, I think, for institutions like University of Phoenix and like Stride 
are how do you wall that in enough to make it beneficial? Because if I go and ask AI and they get it wrong, I have no way of knowing. And then everyone has no way of knowing that they're all wrong. <laughs> and so that's a challenge we're looking at is creating scalable uses of AI that bring education in the right contexts to the right age levels in ways that are truly engaging. So it's not just the buzz of AI that we're working with. We're bringing real products to life. Um, I think you'll see more of it if you follow K-12 or, or Stride. You're going to see some AI products emerging very fast. And uh, we're super excited about it. I can tell you, I'm already testing some of these with my own kids. And uh, definitely, definitely exciting stuff in the future of education with AI. Yeah, so so to jump on the AI topic, so we might as well go there because when you talk about trends in education, it's pretty much AI at this point in time. Yeah. But the biggest thing about AI, and we just did a survey at University of Phoenix and found this out, most people don't have a great understanding and awareness on AI, the different models, the tools, and what it can do. And that's creating some fear in regards to how to use it, when to use it, why to use it. And so our biggest item at University of Phoenix is actually trying to teach students responsible use, not slapping hands all the time. You know, in high academia, you kind of hear this thing like AI, everyone's going to cheat. And it's like, mm, I don't know if that's totally true, but we can also give people assignments and things to incorporate AI as usage of the daily life. For example, in a lot of marketing companies today, they use AI to come up with pitches. And we have an assignment. And I love this. We have an assignment where we ask a student, Go ask ChatGPT for five marketing pitches on Juicy Fruit Gum, and it'll spit out five marketing pitches, and then we have them evaluate what's the best one based on your learning. So first of all, it's not they can't duplicate that assignment because the pitches are all going to be different. Second of all, it teaches them how to use AI responsibly. And third of all, we get to see what they would do in a real-life environment because that's a real-life skill activity. And so... There's a lot of opportunity uh, in relation to building curriculum, creating question banks. There's a lot of things that AI can power, but one of our focuses with AI as a trend is also teaching people what it can do, where it is, what it does, so that we can build that responsible use and, and people not be afraid of it. And so, the critical thinking aspect right, of it. Right. Yeah. It's take out the, the baseline stuff that typically takes us a lot of time, mm -hmm. have that done for you, evaluate it, right. now think critically right. and responsibly. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll, I'll stay on the AI bandwagon, but they took all <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> The, the only other thing I would add to it is, like you talk about the different uses, but I think there's also that opportunity to really kind of blend that ed tech and job tech again. And I know working with the space that we're, we were in, really looking at how we can use AI to help students prepare for that next step, right? And whether it's uh, interview prep, whether it's generative, generative resume building, but really putting those skills in applicable ways to help them advance in their career. So I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities in that space as well, in yeah. addition to everything they talked about with yeah. the personalized learning experiences. Yeah, so good. I feel like there's a, a chapter two. We need to have you guys back in another time. This has been fantastic. And I really do appreciate you making every solid effort to get here in person. I had We had offered and you had asked for a remote opportunity, bring you in on the screen up here, but I said it would just be so much richer if you can be with us. So thank you for making that commitment. It means a lot to me. Before we fade out, I would love to have each of you share your name, the role that you play at the organization you serve, and how we can stay in touch with you. I'm assuming LinkedIn is a great place, in addition to the website as well. Can you start for us with Stride, Chris? Yeah, Chris Herring, uh, head of product for Curriculum Products at Stride, Inc., and uh, best way to stay in contact with me is LinkedIn. I watch all the other social medias, but that's really the only one I contribute meaningful to. <laughs> Good. And Stride Incorporated, what's the website for Stride? 
probably the best site. We, we oh, have yeah, a number K- of sites, but k12.com is probably the best site to check out. Yeah. You did say that. Great. Thank you again. Send it. Yep. Send it, Bakta. And I'm currently the vice president of product overseeing our career services teams with University of Phoenix. And the best way to stay connected is similar. LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, and to learn more, phoenix.edu. Very good. Uh, yeah, Dr. Mark Booker, Vice Provost of Strategy at University of Phoenix. LinkedIn, just like uh, Sandip and Chris. And for information, phoenix.edu. Or if you want information about the institution as a whole for media, phoenix.edu slash media. So good. Thank you, all three of you, for spending your afternoon with us. I have learned a boatload, and I feel like I got to reach back into my roots as an educator and a student myself. So thank you for that that walk in, in history. You've been listening to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center right here in Tempe, Arizona. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean education and business. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.